NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome to this author conversation for the month of May's reading in the 2021 Marginal Syllabus. The Marginal Syllabus is a project that convenes and sustains equity conversations in the margins of texts online using the social annotation tool Hypothesis. I'm Joe Dillon from the Denver Writing Project. I teach English at Gateway High School in Aurora, Colorado. I'll be the host for this, this conversation. So we've got a small familiar panel here to discuss this month's reading, which is titled, We Always Talk About Race, Navigating Race Talk Dilemmas in the Teaching of Literature. And we're thrilled to have the author, Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas here with us. And so uh, I'd like to just invite all, all of our guests to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Ebony Elizabeth Thomas. I am a professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, pr prior to becoming a professor in 2010, I taught in Detroit and Ann Arbor public schools. Um, between 1999 and 2006, I'm also um, a TC from the Oakland County, Michigan Writing Project, um, where I completed the Summer Institute in 2009. Um, yes. Thrilled to uh, be here with you, Ebony. I'm Christina Cantrell from the National Writing Project, and um, I am also connected to the Philadelphia Writing Project, and have been over this last year uh, connected to both Joe and Ebony through the Digital Discourse Project. I mentioned because our colleague Molly Robbins, although she couldn't be here today, she's from the Denver Writing Project, has um, added some comments and we'll, we'll include her in this discussion today um, as she's been sort of annotating alongside us. Thank you, Christina. And of course, thank you, Ebony. Um, my name is Rami Kalir. I'm an assistant professor of learning design and technology at the University of Colorado in Denver. Um, and I'm a co-founder and facilitator of the Marginal Syllabus Project. And I'm just so, so excited for today's conversation. So enough from me. Let's just, let's just dive right in. Terrific. And since I know that, that we've all brought our own markings and notes about this piece to, to help us converse with Ebony, I'd like to ask you, Ebony, to please um, provide a little background, whatever you think um, might be important for us to know about the work we're, we're going to discuss today. Wow. Um, thanks, Joe, for the invitation. And it's wonderful to be with you, um, Remy and Christina. Um, Remy, for the first time, Christina for, you know, uh, many times, you know, um, and I am just reflecting on the moment when I was sitting in those classrooms at a certain high school in southeastern Michigan. And um, I think about the newness of that year. Um, it was the first time 
I taught outside of Detroit public schools. So when I first was introduced uh, to this community, um, I was born and raised in Detroit and I went to Detroit schools. I always emphasize that in my professional biography because I really do believe that our childhoods and our education are foundational and we never, it, that never truly leaves us. And so, and because it's the first context in which we become aware of the world and the self in the world, as well as the other. And so I um, went from Detroit um, to um, moving on to uh, Florida A&M University, which was a historically black university. Then I went back to Detroit and taught in DPS for six years. And unfortunately, because of various actions by a certain former secretary of education, I was laid off like a lot of late Gen X teachers because I didn't have much seniority. So Betsy DeVos. And so I needed to figure out a plan whether or not I was going to go into the charter networks whether I wanted to be a principal or counselor, so retool, or if I wanted to just go into higher ed. So the moment that I encountered uh, Rainfield High School, which is a pseudonym for um, a high school in this college town, um, I encountered them in the fall of 2005 as a brand new doctoral student in, at the School of Education, University of Michigan. And I encountered them as um, a brand new teacher outside of not only an urban context, but the very specific context that I was born and raised in. So, you know, all of my assumptions were shattered during that 2005, 2006 academic year. And then as a dissertator, <laughs> a doc student writing a dissertation, I returned to Rainfield High School uh, during the 2007-2008 academic year in order to uh, pursue um, an interactional ethnographic project um, where I was really looking at teacher discourse and how teachers talked about uh, conflict. I was not thinking about race as being the conflict back then. Um, and what you got as the article was seven years removed or published more than seven years after the events that are documented. So um, it is a retrospective of a retrospective. And even my view as a researcher, um, at, I think is influenced by the, being a teacher from another district who did not have much time at that high school. Um, it was influenced by being a first year doctoral student, you know, and then a third year. So the two, the, the two snapshots I had of Rainfield were as a first year, you know, doctoral student who was teaching there 60% FT. I had three ninth grade classes. So this is what you get in the margins beyond the text, right? And then I was not there the second year because I was laid off again again, nefarious forces really didn't think we needed teachers in Michigan public schools. I just have to put that po political plug in there. And so I wanted to continue teaching while I was working on my doctorate because I couldn't imagine leaving classroom. Um, so I got a job at another Ann Arbor High School, which was more arts-based, arts-focused, and then um, University of Michigan, bless them. They said, you need to make a decision whether you're going to finish this degree or if you're going to go to school full time. And here is a GSI position where you teach freshman composition. 
And so that was sec year two. And then year three, my colleagues invited me back to um, do this professional development with them. And that is the context for this article. I think that's, is there anything else that you um, uh, like to know for background, Joe, before we get into it? No, I appreciate I appreciate that background. And it's interesting to know that you visited the school twice because that, or, or were at the school twice, first as a teacher and then later returning as, as a researcher. Um, I guess the only thing I might, I might be curious about before we dig into our notes and our questions mm -hmm. is I think the article mentions that you, uh, you, you were leading professional development about the analysis you were doing while you were doing it. Yes. Maybe you might just say a word about that, but I also might be sneaking in the first question. <laughs> I think that that's so good. And I'm rubbing my eyes, not because I'm crying, but because, oh my goodness, allergy season. What even is this allergy season, folks? All right. So, <laughs> all right. So here is uh, what it was. Um, my dissertation director, Leslie Rex, who's now retired, was also a former uh, director of one of the writing projects in Ann Arbor. I can, I'm going to mess up the name of this project just because I have been really immersed in Philadelphia. It's is it the Eastern Michigan Writing Project? I'm so embarrassed. Ah, yes. So we're Kathy Fleischer. Kathy Fleischer is the director now. So good friend Kathy Fleischer. I've known her since I was a you know a baby teacher in Ann Arbor. So Kathy Fleischer, I met her around the time I got to Rainfield. So my former dissertation director was a previous director before Kathy. And before that, she was um, a Santa Barbara Writing Project. Is that the name? Whatever the writing project is that is in Santa Barbara, Montecito, et cetera, she was really immersed in that. So Leslie Rex is now retired. You may see that name around because she was really powerful. She was only faculty for 13 years. So she was a writing teacher in California for many, 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 many years. Then she did a decade at the University of Michigan and then she retired because that's what the greatest do. So anyway, she was part of Judith Green's uh, Santa Barbara classroom discourse group, which I talk about in the article. And so what she was doing was she had run a 10 year professional development project with teachers um, at a Detroit suburban school that was not where Rainfield's located, which I mean, I guess I can say it. I, you know, I mean, from the article, you know, it's the college town you know, where I was working on my doctorate. So this suburb is, was an inner ring suburb. And so I was trained to do this work by Leslie as her research assistant during the final two years of this 10 year study that she had done um, at, um, you know, in this suburban school district where there were only two high schools and they were kind of rivals, not just in sports, but the two sides of town were really going through transition. So um, I learned a lot about um, how to set up similar professional development. But again, this project is not like hers. It's not um, an embedded like 10 year study where you're going to each of the high schools, where you're sitting with the teachers every month. Um, it's a very different, um, it was a very different kind of thing, but the research methodologies and all of the frameworks that underpinned my dissertation study, which is where this article is derived, um, 
came from Leslie Rex's work and then were indirectly influenced by, um, you know, Judith Green, the work of Judith Green out at UC uh, Santa Barbara. Terrific. Well, I know that we all have, we've all marked up our, our various copies of the article and are excited to talk about it with you. Just before we do that, though, I want to ask Ramey to uh, provide a little background on what brings us all here today in terms of what is the Marginal Syllabus Project. Joe, thank you. And Ebony, again, thanks so much. I'm just still scrawling notes uh, to digest even the in a wonderful introduction you've provided. Um, and you know, I should mention, since you emphasize the importance of childhood and foundation, I have some personal connections to the locations of <laughs> This particular work and maybe that's to be unpacked in another conversation but it's just to me one of the kind of beautiful coincidences of engaging with partner authors and kind of deepening the relevance of this work both to our professional lives but also to the personal connections that we all we all carry into the work that we do and i just want to honor that as, as we connect the marginal syllabus project with with a new partner author um, so i'll just keep this brief and mention you know that the marginal syllabus has since 2016 um, convened conversations broadly about educational equity we are a kind of interest-driven approach to literacy professional learning, engaging with educators who have a desire to read articles that may challenge conceptions around their practice and their professional beliefs. It has provided hundreds of educators at this point with an opportunity to read articles by now dozens and dozens of partner authors over again these number of years, uh, engage with a variety of topics, whether it's critical indigenous literacies, you know, various aspects of youth civic engagement, aspects of anti-racist pedagogy, a whole host of topics curated into a variety of syllabi that again, provide educators with interest-driven pathways to explore uh, new uh, professional learning interests. Um, this current 2021 syllabus is explicitly aligned with the Black Lives Matter at Schools Year of Purpose and the values and the calls to action that are in that document. There's a link to that in our syllabus and we've curated then together four key texts, um, all of which come from uh, the journal Research and the Teaching of English that speak to uh, that important work and help to amplify those uh, really anti-racist teaching practices in literacy classrooms. And that's been a core goal of the current syllabus. Um, you know, I have to mention, of course, that this work would not be possible because of our partner authors, again, like Ebony, but in addition to, many organizations that have lended their support you know, over the years now. And that includes, of course, the Writing Project, many shout outs already so far in this conversation, but also NCTE, the National Council of Teachers of English uh, has for the past number of years provided access to journal articles um, that have really helped to make the important research and the important implications for, for literacy, education, and practice, just that much more uh, easily accessible to a wide readership of folks who engage in the project. So I'll leave, our, I'll leave my comments there. Um, I'm so excited to start to discuss um, this retrospective of a retrospective, which as I at least read it was so relevant to what's happening today that, that maybe that's a good way of returning back to this, this wonderful work. So thank you so much for everybody who's listening and watching. I'm looking forward to, to, to diving in. Thank you, Ramey. And as, as is occasionally the case, we have kind of a small familiar panel this time because sometimes when we're scheduled in the middle of the day as we are pre-recording this webinar, it's hard for practicing teachers to get here. So I'm really glad that Christina has some of Molly's annotations to represent. But the point is 
we all know each other and have done this a, a few times. So no need for me to direct any traffic. I'll just invite everyone to start sharing their notes and uh, and Ebony, certainly you can speak up or uh, let us know if you, if you wanna put a pause on us, but we all think we know what we're doing here. And I know that I've already taken the first question. So I'll yield to Christina and Ramey a little bit. Sure, yeah, I, I was, that first question was the one I was interested in too. And it's probably the writing project background that brings that, that, that work of like really thinking about how researchers and teachers and students, I would say, work together, can work together, what's possible to grow in that. So it's one of the things in this article that I was really interested in is sort of how you saw um, this place and your colleagues as, you know, what, how are these, I think you say that, you know, sites of um, promising sites of learning and like, how do we work together and develop together? So I'm, so I find your article really appealing in that sort of dialogue way. And then that brings me to thinking about, I mentioned the Digital Dialogues Project that has um, the, a, a team from um, well, across the country, but based at UPenn and then the Denver Writing Project, the Philadelphia Writing Project together. And Joe's part of that and Molly's part of that. And, um, and thinking about the, ways that you know dialogue for what right has been sort of like a key question um that keeps coming up in that work wait why are we talking about literature in the first place what are you know and what are the implications so in this and you know i think it's in, i'm sorry there's a few layers but i see it like all the history that you talked about you know in your article, actually, I so just to tie this directly to something in the article on page 172, you talk about how students receive implicit messages that conflicts must be resolved, despite the fact we live in a world with many pressing conflicts and few politically viable solutions, <laughs> right? And then, and so this this idea that you know we've got these explicit and implicit messages that are going back and forth all the time in classrooms and all the time through literature. And what are we as teachers, what's our role in this as teachers and educators and what are we working to accomplish here? So, so I don't know if that gets us to like digital discourse for what or a dialogue for what, but what, what you know, what were you hoping to accomplish in, in, in this article? Like, working with your colleagues and saying, and like, what are the implications for today too, when we've got an environment that's changed a lot over how many years this has been? So in about a decade. Yeah. So, wow. What you just said, Christina, really sparked a memory that I think I've tamped down because originally, not only was I not wanting to do uh, professional development because I was a super young teacher when I first started out. So it was almost like, I'm a teacher under 30. Like, I think I was 20 or 29, maybe 29 when I did this project, maybe 29, 30, something like that. But I just feel like I didn't know enough to be call myself an expert on professional development so three things that's the first my youth at the time um two was I, this was before i was a writing project person so i did not get a chance to um uh, get involved with the writing project when i was a detroit public schools teacher and it's the sole regret i have of my um induction years because at the time you know the detroit 
writing project, which I think was the Wayne State Writing Project, it had a really rocky history. You know, it was off and on, and I didn't know much about it until um, I got to Michigan. So I learned about the National Writing Project through the University of Michigan and at NCTE 2000, either 2004 or five one of those years, it was like years after I started teaching. So that's number two. So I didn't have, I wasn't a national writing project person yet. Um, I was young and I didn't wanna write a dissertation about conflict. I was hoping to write a dissertation that focused on conflict resolution. So when I realized I couldn't focus on literature because that really wasn't um, a topic of focus for the faculty there. Then when I began getting, um, when I began working with Leslie, I was really fascinated by her work on classroom interaction and Mary Schleppergirl's work on academic language, which of course there has been so much discourse about over the past 15 years. But then I really wanted to think, so I thought, wow, one of the things I didn't know how to handle as a young teacher, English high school, I'm sorry, high school English teacher was how do I handle conflicts when they arise in the classroom? And and I really had the year at Rainfield uh, fresh in my head because it was so different. And all my articles that are from my dissertation, um, you know, the one with Kelly Saucy, who directs the Red River Writing Project, um, you know, we, I've always been, I was wrestling with, you know, sort of being in a, a, a black majority school versus being in a school where I was sometimes the only black person in the room as a teacher, or it was a super diverse or hyper diverse context, right? So here's the thing, I wanted to know how to resolve conflict. So if you're reading Night and you have Jewish and Palestinian kids in the class and you have black kids in the class and you have like white suburban kids in the class, then like, how do you deal with that? And nobody had any answers for me. I was like thrown into the water because again, I didn't know about NWB and you know, it was just, anyway, I keep saying, I wish I had had National Writing Project to say, if I had had a teacher inquiry perspective, I would have been able to take a different stance toward the entire project. So I'm proud of what I did. I could have done more to bring the teachers and the teacher's perspective in if I'd known what I was doing and if I'd seen that modeled. And at that moment that you're reading about, I didn't. So I had during the year, you know, sort of that sandwich year, I was reflecting on my uh, experience at the school, which I write about in Walking the Talk, which Kelly Sassi is the first author of. She was, that was her dissertation. And then I thought about, well, how do you like not have conflicts? And so Leslie Rex said, well, if you want to write, you can't write about conflict resolution because you don't know what the conflicts are. So that is why the dissertation focused on those powder keg moments, like the ones we identified in the 2008 English Journal article, Walking the Talk, like, you know, when, you know, Native Americans owned, uh, you know, or owned Native American, some Native Americans. So let me be clear, because I have more language available to me now. The five, uh, the five of the nations, you know, uh, were um, encouraged, let's just, you know, call it what it is. They were encouraged by sort of the white landholding supremacist structure that if they adopted European ways, which at the time included enslaving people of African descent, they would be able to, you know, coexist. And of course, this was not the case. And so my students uh, just, 
read the line that although they had been removed, you know, from that land, we were reading about Native Americans, sorry. Um, this is important context because the two articles are really intertwined in ways that I did not disclose and maybe should have disclosed as background, right? You know, so thinking about like, how do you deal with that kind of moment where Native American or Native people owned uh, like not Native Americans owned African-Americans. Uh, you see the messiness of my thing. I'm like, I'm editing thinking that I've had for about 15 years and I'm refining it in real time. So I'm like correcting my old self. Cause I would have said to you 10 years ago, just glibly, oh yeah, my students are really confused by why Native Americans owned African-Americans. And like, I wanna amend like most of that sentence, right? But maybe I'll stop rambling here and just like, but those were really the three things that I think would help bring some more, comp uh, you know, context for where I was writing the article and what I was thinking about uh, doing the research. So, yeah, rambling. You're, uh, making your thinking visible, which, you know, ah, as, as yeah. someone who, you know, as we all care about writing and practices like annotation, you know, we're, we're just constantly making our thinking visible. Um, I, I'm so taken now with the focus on on conflict and conflict resolution, um, and particularly the kind of presence of conflict non-resolution that really speaks loudly, at least in my reading of, of this particular piece. Um, and so also just again, to, to root us in an aspect of the text, as, as readers you know, begin to engage Ebony with this work, if they've, if they've yet to do so, again, there are two educators who are, you know, whose work is featured in detail, Anthony and Ella. And again, in the conclusion, you, you mentioned that they both, Anthony and Ella had these well-established routines for classroom talk that helped to kind of push their students through the conflict that was inherent to talking about race. And again, it reminds me of this kind of non-resolution stance to the dilemmas of having productive discussion um, around race and certainly now in today's context, racial justice, which was very much on my mind as I was reading this, this piece. And I'm wondering if you might share some thoughts with us about how some of the insights that you document in this piece resonate today and in the contexts of classrooms today, and also what perhaps you are seeing in classrooms today that may be <laughs> tweaked, refined, you know, worked with in light of what you've documented in a piece that has been there for educators to read and yet to me just speaks so loudly to the needs of the moment. So thanks so much. I was really uh, wrestling with how to get the piece in print because I, um, I should say that one of the reasons why it appears seven years after the research study and five years post-PhD was because first, you know, there were a convergence of two factors, learning how to write a social science research article based on a really long dissertation. So that was one writing skill that I had to master. And then, so there was a, a, a craft or a rhetorical or a, you know, like a learning curve that I needed to sort of, you know, uh, surf there. And then the other piece of that was I needed to figure out, um, you know, sort of 
I, I kind of needed to wait until society caught up with things because when I first published on the study, um, some of my early reviewers, not only were they not very kind, they were quite offended by how I wrote about Ella in particular. So during those years, Ella was in her final uh, uh, time as a classroom teacher. So she's been retired for about a decade now. I would share drafts with participants. Um, I wasn't yet... Uh, uh, um, in NWP. So I didn't realize what best practices were, you know, like, you know, or what the ethics, but it just seemed wrong to me to be writing behind a teacher's back. So Ella actually was reading drafts and she was actually quite um, hard on herself uh, because um, she really wanted desperately to reach the growing number of Black uh, students and other students of color that she had in her classroom because um, this particular college town slash suburb slash town was starting to get way more diverse than it had been in the past. And um, she would talk to me. So that was one reason she agreed to be part of the study because um, another thing that I think I don't disclose, I didn't disclose a lot, uh, because some of it was from uh, Kelly Saucy's study. So it's almost like those two dissertations are interlinked in ways that if Kelly and I ever get an opportunity, um, now that she's been out about 15 years and I've been out, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15, we need to just go back and maybe read across those two studies. Because if you look at Kelly's work, the stuff we published together, my work, and then on her own, my work, and then the articles I generated. It's almost a narrative of, you know, not really the school and the teachers, but of this college town. And the shadow participant is the University of Michigan, which I just, you know, I mean, it was our dissertation, you know, I, you know, they could sue. Um, well, she disclosed what school it was, but, you know, and it's just so many layers, right? When I look back at it. So as I'm starting to talk about this article for the first time with colleagues in this way, I'm just like, my goodness, like there's a lot that was going on that didn't show up on the page. So um, yeah, so that, I think that's where, you know, what I'm thinking about when I think about this idea of focus on conflict, the conflict was palpable, not just at that school, but in that particular town and certainly in that state and region in ways that absolutely matter because this was the Midwest. And we have seen nationally that the Midwest has some sectional issues that I feel as if we really don't talk about much. We talk about sort of urban versus suburban versus rural, or we focus on the South or we look at particular states. But the Midwest is construct, I think, is also um, something that connects this 13-year-old uh, study to the present 2021 uh, spring moment that we're seeing right now, you know, because again, we're back in the Midwest looking at national events and national conflict and clashes between, between folks for, for, you know, better or for worse, for life or for death. So yeah. All right. That's that ramble. <laughs> One thing that was so many of this, many things I encountered in this article were reframing things for me, but I have to confess, I had not come across Mika Pollock's um, dilemmas. Um, there, you, you start off um, six paradoxes that were evident when teachers and students talk about race. 
so I, I found those fascinating. And then what I really appreciated in the piece was as you analyzed um, two different like snapshots from two different classrooms, you highlighted some specific dilemmas that you saw surface. And to me, it spoke to the complex, the list of dilemmas speaks to the complexity of the issue you're, we're thinking about here, right? And it, it, I think it engenders a little bit of, at least because I'm a classroom teacher, I hope it engenders a little bit of like sympathy with the classroom teacher that this is a, these are complex problems with, you know, mm -hmm. students who move and think and have personalities and voices and all those things. So complex problems that kind of defy a lot of the simplification we sometimes want to, we want to, you know, box them up in when we might create best practices or what have you. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about those um, dilemmas you saw surface because they, I mean, they, they jumped off the page to me. And so I just want to name one. So with the teacher, Anthony, you said that the dilemma that surfaced was race does and does not matter because people do and do not belong to simple racial categories. Um, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that only, only because it jumped off the page to me, but also because I think that I found those kinds of things to be something to be like, like those are teachable things to students, both students of color and white students, the notions of, you know, how race functions in our society. And often our students have a very simple framing for these things. You know, Joe, I just reflect back and it's so interesting to think about what was being talked about in the academy 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I missed 20 years ago, but you know, so when I first came into graduate school, uh, one of the very first books I read was Mika Pollock's Color Mute. She was at Harvard at the time and she was like, she'd done this huge anthro study um, for several years at a California high school because, you know, California is a very interesting place to learn about, you know, like, I guess, hyperdiversity or super diversity. Um, if you go to Ben Rampton, like it's, you know, because you have, you know, no one is um, in the majority, or it's like at a lot of, in a lot of schools. And so she ran this study, I think for about three years, she was just embedded in high school and it was really wonderfully complicated. And, uh, people were talking about it because there just wasn't a lot out there in the mid two thousands to have these conversations. Um, so we, um, I was, um, this all crystallized for me, years later, because I had to go back to that initial encounter, that first encounter with both Rainfield High School and, uh, you know, sort of academic uh, educational research, because I was experiencing Rainfield for the first time in the fall of 05. And then I had um, Carl O'Connor's uh, sociology of education, no, education and cultural studies course. And so she told us, she said, well, this is um, a book that's won awards. It's by this new assistant professor who's really brilliant. Let's all read it. And so I remember reading it that fall and I was fascinated and it became sort of some wall, it became wallpaper for this very interesting experience that I was having at, um, 
at Rainfield because growing up in Detroit, one of the things I think doesn't get said because Detroit is very, it's lensed in very interesting ways because of the 12th Street Rebellion in 1967. One of the differences, the signal differences between me and, you know, Black Philadelphians is that I have to learn from them about what it means to have a, you know, to be a minority in a city, to have a black mayor, and then to have a bomb dropped on you. So I grew up in a context where it was, you know, the war on drugs, and you had you know, a lot of violence in that context, but the entire power structure in Detroit was black. And the city was 82% black. And so one of the things that I think people should note is that most people my age who are black Detroiters tend to be kind of moderate in our politics because the black radicalism that produced Coleman Young and some of that, like we got a chance to kind of see them run the government. And so I came into uh, Rainfield really expecting everybody to be the same as me in ways that are that I hear from African and Caribbean immigrants. So basically growing up in Detroit in a pretty intact situation, and I've talked to other Detroiters who are professionals about this, we had a very, those of us who don't remember 1967, and I can't speak for everybody, I feel as if the younger group of Detroiters are more radical, like we have a lot of, but if you talk, talk to people between like, ages 30 and 60 who might not remember what happened when um, at, at the Algiers Motel. And we, we, we tend to be, so anyway, I went into this experience. I think that matters, like my political stance matters. So I was coming after, you know, years of, you know, working class, middle class family. I went to the two best magnet high schools in Detroit. I went to FAMU on full scholarship where most of the kids were pretty middle class from the new South. I came back home. I taught at Cass Tech, which is famous. So that's like teaching at uh, Whitney Young in Chicago or Central or Girls High End. And then I go to Pioneer and all the black kids are mad at me. Like I was a teacher and my black kids really didn't trust me. And the white kids were hyper-correcting my grammar. And I had no way to understand what was going on in that context as a teacher, except through Michael Pollock's dilemmas, right? So that was the lens that most made sense to me when I was thinking, well, wait a minute, race matter. Like I was a 29-year-old woman, folks, saying, wait a minute you know, like not just in a historical sense, race matters. It's not just, okay, if you, you know, like it was really, and I don't know why I was that naive for that long, but I am here just baldly admitting that I was really, it's in my dissertation. I tend to not have filters. Like I even say that in the first chapter of my dissertation where people are like, the black kids are being suppressed here at Rainfield. And I said, what did I care about this when I could, you know, there were no copiers in certain Detroit schools. The water fountain works here at Rainfield. You know, like the building is clean. Like, so I don't know, I, that's, that's sort of, that's not an answer to why the dilemmas were important. I just, Joe, I just didn't understand what the heck was going on. Like this was the suburban paradise that my existence supposedly was the bad side of. Like, 
And, you know, I survived that. And I was like, okay, well, this, it's only going to go up from here. Yay. I'm in Ann Arbor. It's going to be awesome. And then it was like, conflict. You know, you walk in into the darkest timeline from, uh, was it community or like, and it's like the, you know, guy walks in with pizza and it's like, and you just, you have no idea where you are. And it really was that book, which I highly recommend people digging up um, if you're working um, in, in such, a, such, a, such a context or teaching, I should say, in such a context, because it's super complicated. But anyway, so yeah, you got to stop me from talking. Just, uh, I am from a culture where I was raised by great migration Southerners. So please interrupt me because I will keep talking. I think this is my favorite thing about marginal syllabus, honestly, is that we learn, like, you, you look at this research article that's, you know, so many pages long, and then you get this whole beautiful context around it, and in it, and through it, mm -hmm. and it always makes me, like, wonder, like, like, we just need more of this, right? <laughs> we just need, you know, and that's what is so exciting to me about, you know, being able to annotate in the margins, being able to talk with partner authors, being able to like, and like you're saying, you know, connect these net, these stories. So there's this piece and this piece and this piece and what happens when we look across, like that's so beautiful. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Cause what you just said helped me answer Joe's question directly. I could understand that race did and didn't matter at Rainfield High School because all through my life, the first 29 years of my life, race did and did not matter. I knew I was black. I'd experienced maybe some, some kinds of discrimination, but it was like that, like no one ever called me an N-word in class. I was never assumed to be not smart. I was in the honors classes because the school district was over 90% black. So like, so race didn't, I shouldn't say race didn't matter because people are going to look at this and be like, what? But you know, it really, I get when Chimamanda Adichie says that she felt, she first felt black when she came to the United States. So I always knew I was black, but it was more of an ethnic sense of knowing. I became, I understood what being black in the United States means at Rainfield, at the University of Michigan, and at the University of Pennsylvania. That's when I've really learned over the past uh, almost 15 years of my life, because before I don't know what I thought, I don't know where I thought I was, but it wasn't this. <laughs> I did want to bring the voice of Molly in. Um, so just to say, she also annotated uh, Mika Pollock's work and um, she, uh, Joe, you'll have to provide some context for where she teaches because I can't speak to that at all. But she says that when we explicitly discuss race with our students or not, it's still in the room. And this speaks to the need to acknowledge it. Students are hungry to discuss it. Um, and then later on, um, when she's reacting to um, the one teacher responding to his kids. I know you're, t some of you have said you're tired of reading books about race, right? I think is what he says. It's on 160, I don't know what that. Mm -hmm. And then she said, I start wondering if students say they're tired of reading books about race, if they're actually tired of books that do not show joy steeped in radicalized story. I find that over the past five to seven years, folks have come up with ways to talk about things that we were all fumbling toward for a long time before. 
So, you know, um, even today, um, you saw that they're going to make uh, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which is a masterpiece of a book. Um, it's been adapted. And then, of course, it was trending with no more slavery books because there was slavery fatigue on the part of uh, folks of African descent. And I think what people are objecting to is not the fatigue with slavery movies. Again, it is exactly what our, our comrade is. Molly? Molly, yeah. Good. Molly has said um, that it's it's the the it's the uh, the depiction of a one dimensional past. So okay, like we all, I feel like we imagine our ancestors and means all of us, so because it's difficult to imagine complexity in the past just as difficult as it is to imagine the future. I think a lot about that in my current work, like, you know, science fiction and fantasy, like why is it hard to diversify the fantastic genres? And it's like, you know, this is hard. So it's like, so ancestors weren't just uh, slaves or suffering because one of the things I keep pointing out, I've pointed out on Twitter, I've pointed out in classes, okay, if we have this stance toward uh, ancestors, whether we're of African descent, you know, um, if we are, you know, Jewish and descended from Holocaust survivors, if we are um, Asian and descended from those who have been affected or, you know, uh, by imperialism, um, if we were poor white and from Eastern Europe and, you know, were, you know, subjected to forced starvation, it's almost like these people get reduced to their, like our ancestors get reduced to the, the you know, to the very real horror they experienced. And I'm starting to become uncomfortable with that because you see it again with the police shooting um, um, victims or, you know, those who the state murders. So it's like, they are reduced to their moment of death, but that was like a moment, just like the moment of birth. So like, I would like to actually see an innovation in that genre of book slash film where we see the fullness of the people's lives. I think Lovecraft Country tried uh, to do it. It was uneven. I thought it was brilliant in spots and then it was uneven in other spots in the storytelling. Watchmen did it. You know, both stories really needed to be um, mindful about sort of Asian uh, tropes and storytelling and U.S. imperialism. And I want them to, you know, like there were things that I wanted on both those writing staffs. But I, I say all that to say this ramble is about, you know, sort of just wanting us to, um, to understand that we can uh, add more roundedness and more lifelikeness uh, in the, not only how we collectively remember the past, but, you know, advocating for get, uh, having those kinds of books and those kinds of stories and those kinds of uh, reading opportunities for our students and eventually, you know, generative writing opportunities. So like, what was this person beside a slave? What was this person beside, you know, someone who was in the Warsaw ghetto? Like what happened in the years before? What, you know, like uh, thinking about, you know, Ukraine or the Herero, you know, genocide, you know, we read about, we read Heart of Darkness. Those people had, you know, tens of thousands more years of history before, you know, Leopold II, may his name be cursed, got there. Like, you know, and then not to say, you know, anything about the, the you know, the, the cleansing of the North, of North America's, you know, genocide, the worst genocide in human history, which actually affected the climate. 
and may have led to the little ice age. They're not saying it yet, but you know, they 60 million. So we saw that to say, but those people had lives and that's why we don't want the trauma because the powers that be want us to just have these trauma narratives. And it's like, well, can we like end the story before the, you know, the tall ships get there? Like, just tell me the story of what a village in Cahokia was like, or like what Cahokia was like, and don't end it with, and then the, you know, the Kong, you know, the, the con not conquistadors. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm really resonating with comrade Molly's uh, uh, musing there. And I, I feel it. I totally feel it. I agree. I totally agree. I I want to just, you know, thank you too for your um, list for young readers every year too, because I think that is such a source of finding these stories and finding these more full narratives to, to and these complex, you know, um, multi-narratives um, that really are behind all our lives. So appreciate that. What I really appreciate about just listening to, and again, just taking so many notes about the wisdom you're sharing with us today, Ebony, is that, that this, these are the associative trails, you know, and the fact that we've covered history in a whole variety of ways, counter narrative, joy, and all of this inspired by these, again, as you've shared, retrospective on retrospective depictions of classroom teaching practices. And yet they're so rich in their associations to what we're really grappling with today. Um, I, and I have to wonder, and again, I also, thank you, Christina, for shouting out, you know, this ama the amazing list. I mean, I, I, I always look forward to when the list will be announced. And I'm always waiting for your list of books to come out and, you know, what have I missed? And what was I, of course, just not aware of to begin with and, you know, recommendations for those folks that I, that I work with. Um, and I wonder if, if uh, maybe is my kind of final-ish question, comment in this such, it's just, just root, such a rich discussion, wondering if you might speak uh, a little bit about how the types of books that do showcase joy, and as you said, the roundedness of everyday experience, how those types of narratives perhaps still also convey the complexities um, that Joe even referenced earlier, some of the dilemmas around identity and belonging and culture, and yet perhaps do so in a way that may be less exploitative or maybe less kind of drenched in the types of trauma narratives that you were just referencing. And I wonder if that sparks for you, um, again, some commentary that may be useful for literacy educators who are then selecting texts and how they also then want to move into a space of, of doing some productive wrestling with the dilemmas that we've been discussing today. Yeah, I think that um, today's storytellers are really getting books into print um, with the major houses that aren't just meant to teach kids something that are also meant to, you know, give them a full literary experience, um, you know, uh, and to really immerse them into the lives of uh, characters who are who are nuanced. Um, I can give a recent example um, that I just loved. Uh, Renee Watson is just one of our very very best uh, storytellers for for children and. Uh, her current, so she's currently running a wonderful middle grade series. So she writes children's middle grade 
and uh, young adult fiction. And her book, Love is a Revolution, I think exemplifies the kind of storytelling that we're seeing for uh, for um, young adults. Um, I was looking for the protagonist name because I read so much that, you know, I don't want to, I want to make sure I get the protagonist name right. So Nala is this 17 uh, year old girl who um, is growing up in this wonderful blended Jamaican American family in Harlem. So she's, you know, where there's lots of love. She lives with her aunt Ebony and because of good friends with Renee, you know, I, I, you know, I'm flattered to think that, you know, Aunt Ebony, that's, that's me. Um, <laughs> and um, she has a, 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 a sister, um, is it the sister or the cousin who is a teen activist in a Black Lives Matter movement. And so Nala starts going to the meetings and she falls in love with, you know, um, someone who's involved. In, in the movement, but Nala is not, you know, a movement warrior girl, you know, she is not, you know, stereotypical in any way. She's dark skinned, she's full figured, but she's confident, you know, she's surrounded by love. She's growing up in this richly uh, nuanced matriarchal home uh, where there isn't a lot, you know, ton of money, but, you know, you're getting a chance to see the life of a a, a black girl, a black teenage girl who lives and breathes off the page. And so I just have to shout out Renee. And then there's one other, if you think about speculative fiction, Tracy Dion's Legendborn, which is just getting it's starting to sweep all of the awards. And it is because you have first, the storytelling is riveting from the first page. Tracy is brilliant. She grabs you from the very first page. It's a, a Southern uh, layered response, Black Southern layered response to sort of the King Arthur and high fantasy narratives. It's a portal quest fantasy where um, Brie, who's just lost her mom under mysterious circumstances, you know, becomes immersed in this parallel world. And it's just uh, incredible. So you have contemporary realism that does it well. And then you have uh, fa uh, fantasy, you know, Legendborn. And then a forthcoming book, which I am almost a month overdue for the blurb, um, <laughs> Bethany Morrow's, um, this is not advertising, you know, I would say no if I didn't like the book. Bethany Morrow's So Many Beginnings is a, um, a, a Black uh, retelling of Little Women, but not really. It's its own story because what Bethany has done for us is to remind us that there were Black girls and women and everybody else living during the time frame that Alcott was writing during. So I am just delighted at seeing the broad range of narratives, you know, that deal with urban life the trauma of losing a parent and living in the South or the scary past, you know, 19th century, you know, that really are, are, are being handled so thoughtfully by today's authors. May it continue? Well, 
I sure appreciate all the background you shared with respect to this piece. And I really think you've given us a, a full picture of, you know, why this piece that was written so early in your career probably deserves a really strong consideration today. I'm really excited that folks get to read and annotate it with us during the month of May. So I really appreciate all the, all the layers you've added on to this piece that I think teachers and educators of all stripes will find really relevant. And, you know, it situates some questions that teachers are, um, are grappling with at a time where, where maybe talking about race and when you wrote this was, you know, sort of less on the front burner for schools. Whereas now, I think there's so much discourse about how to talk about race in schools and, and teachers, whether they feel equipped or not, are feeling like there's appropriate positive pressure to do so. So I think your piece is helpful. I know this conversation will be uh, well received by educator audiences. So I just thank you. And I wanna ask Ramey and Christina, would you mind just sharing um, a takeaway of yours mate, perhaps? Again, Ebony, thank you so much for you know joining us as a partner author in, in the project. Um, and I think that my one you know takeaway is to appreciate the expansiveness and the kind of historical rootedness of our lives as educators, as researchers, and how you know that's going to be the case for 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 so many of us. And so, for literacy educators who are selecting texts to read and discuss with their students, who are trying to you know find ways of productively and introspectively and critically navigate this moment um, based upon their own subject positions, um, being able to think in the types of expansive and historically rooted ways that you've modeled in our conversation today and that your text as a mentor text really demonstrates so well. I just, it's such a, it's such a gift. So thank you again so much for joining us, joining us today. Yeah, I, I um, echo all that and thank you so much for being here. And I was thinking about, from sort of a writing perspective and like, I kind of, the stories you tell Ebony, I just, I, I so appreciate the, you know, you call it unbounded, but the, the wholeness of which you're telling us these stories. And I wonder like, can we do some of the same together in the margins of this text? Like, like can we like share our stories in connection to these stories that you're sharing here and in the margins of this article and sort of expand on, you know, our, our vision of um, what it is we do as teachers and what are the stories we're bringing into this mix and how are they so important and how do they interact with each other and sort of, you know, celebrate the, the, the multiplicity of, of all of this work. So, um, so thank you. And I, I, I love that you sort of demonstrated how we might do that here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I'm leaving this conversation wondering what this would have been like this article from either Ella or Anthony's perspective. And it would have been interesting to, you know, get their reflections on me as the researcher sitting in the corner of the room, sitting in the corner of the professional development and um, bringing in these guest speakers. So um, I just want to just thank all of you for giving me the opportunity and just sending a fond hello to any of our, our teacher colleagues who would like to uh, write me or to have further conversations. So, um, uh, yeah, just thanks for having me. This is great. Terrific. Well, thanks again, everyone. And uh, just a reminder, 
we always talk about race, navigating race talk dilemmas in the teaching of literature will be available online for annotation throughout the month of May and, and then ongoing after that for participant annotations at educatorinnovator.org. And you can follow this project by following the hashtag marginal syllabus. Thanks everyone. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.